1: Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's go back overseas to Europe and the situation in Ukraine. Very excited to talk to one of our new friends. She's a new contributor with Young Voices, but she's done plenty of media before. She's a journalist and communications specialist. Uh, she is from Ukraine. She's currently in Poland. We're going to talk about all that. Tanya Rock, how are you, ma'am? Thank you so very much for your time today.
2: Hello, Andrew. Thanks for your time and inviting me here. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm doing great. Hope you're well too.
1: Yeah, we're doing well. Appreciate your time. Let's just start with you, though, for folks that haven't got to read up on you or are familiar with you. You've done more overseas media with BBC and things like this, TechCrunch. We'll talk about your previous things that you like to talk about. Obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed your life personally. Things like Mariupol is a place on a map and images on a screen, but that's home for you. Uh, give people a little bit of your background, where you come from and why we're talking to you in Poland instead of where you grew up, where you're from, and why that means something very different to you than just us in international audience hearing those words.
2: All right. Uh, sounds great. So uh, as for the beginning... Mm. I I was born in Mariupol and I was living there most of my life. Uh, I moved to Kiev due to work reason last year, but unfortunately my family stayed there when war broke out in Ukraine. And that means that uh, they got stuck in the blockade of Mariupol for three and a half months. And since it was really a severe bombarding, there was no any ability to get in touch with them or to check what was going on in the city. So for me, it became very personal. I was trying to get in touch with them to find them and to get them out of the blockade during all this time. And to to make it clear how bad it was, uh, you could not find any information about the people because they cut out the mobile connection. And all that was possible is to look through information in local chats and Telegram to see the devastations that were taking place in a certain neighborhood. That's how you approximately could understand what was going on there. Later, uh, luckily, I managed to find them and to get them out. That's why we made it out of Ukraine and currently settled down in Poland. Also, during that time, I was uh, trying to help people who... We're getting out of the blockade. That's together with my colleagues, also journalists and media specialists. We started the online project uh, that was recording and correcting information and personal stories of people who made it out of the blockade.
1: For folks that don't know, because you've been through this now, how accurate has been the coverage in Western media of all that? We're, you know, we're coming up on almost a year into this war now. Is the imaging and the reporting on it accurately depicting? Because obviously you can't fully show the horrific nature of this war. How has the coverage been to the Western audience, do you think? Are they getting a good picture? Are they getting an accurate picture of what's going on?
2: I think that it generally depends on the country that we are talking about because media market is different for each uh, country. And that uh, also depends whether this is an independent media or this is a state-controlled media. When we talk about Western media, I can give examples uh, how certain things are covered um, in German media, for example. I think that wording is quite important so that journalists don't use the word in conflict because conflict is not war and war is exactly what is going on now. At the same time, I think that in countries that uh, previously were under the communist impact The situation is more clear because people have also this historical memory and they remember how things were for them. And that's why you can also see that in the narratives uh, where journalists, media and government stand for Ukraine and support it fully and wholeheartedly. But also when we are talking about uh, the American media, I think that quite often journalists have the lack of local context. It doesn't mean that they spread misinformation or related, but it also means that they have to dig deeper on the context, on the historical reasons of this war, and also uh, on uh, the ongoing situation.
1: Yeah. Tanya Rack joining us. You just touched on it, but... It seems like a small thing for us, the difference between saying war and saying conflict, Um, even, you know, saying Ukraine or the Ukraine, the old Soviet designation of it. Little words like that, you know, to a foreign audience, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. But when you're dealing with a war that the propaganda war is just as important as the shooting war part of it, those kind of words and terminologies really, really matter, don't they?
2: Uh, Yeah, I totally agree with that, and I think that during these days all wars are hybrid wars, that's why it is also necessary to understand that everything that goes on the internet stays on the internet and the tools of propaganda are quite powerful. That means that uh, war should be led also online. Uh, Speaking about the recent cases of uh, uh, Russian propaganda that I saw on social media, Uh, that were online campaigns against Ukraine. So I would specify on Poland. Uh, In Poland, uh, there was a recent campaign that was called Tony Nasza Wojna, which means uh, that's not our war. And it started as a banner campaign uh, organized by the anti-war Polish movement. But basically, it was a disguise for the anti-Ukrainian and pro-Russian campaign. It also became quite viral on Twitter and hit the top of Polish Twitter, uh, where people were standing for uh, deporting Ukrainians uh, back to Ukraine, or also Russian narratives were spreading misinformation from so-called Department of Foreigners, uh, where they said that Ukrainian man would be called to army. And also there was a call to action on giving the information about Ukrainians settling down in Poland and recording that through QR codes. So these are small things, but it just re- reminds that we have to fact check all the information, all the resources, all the numbers, and only after that to share it and to it to our informational space.
1: Tanya Rack joining us, you just mentioned it. So let's get into it for folks that maybe aren't fully aware refugees is something that putin specifically in russia as a foreign policy has found a way to try to weaponize and they try to use that as a tool the refugee crisis out of ukraine is so massive you just mentioned that though countries like poland are really sharing the burden on this this is just another front in the war the the propaganda and the politics surrounding refugees that is a direct reflection of the war but it's a purposeful reflection that's that's made to happen to cause further chaos isn't it uh
2: definitely yes and i think that it also it is also necessary to highlight how refugees are labeled how they are portrayed and uh, what would happen after this war ends Uh, due to the prognosis of the experts war may last till 2024 2025 and turn to a cold war but it also means that um, people would have to deal with the refugee crisis right now there is approximately 6.5 million of ukrainians who had to flee from country due to war and uh, poland is a country that received the biggest amount of refugees so that also means that uh, people should go through a certain adaptation process because other than that uh, later there can be a great tool for Russian uh, narratives and Russian propaganda to blame and victimize refugees for economic problems, for social problems, for taking away workplaces uh, or uh, Poles paying taxes for that, which can also be of, the, of an issue.
1: Tanya Brack joining us. You're there with Poland. You're familiar with it. You've mentioned it. There's a lot of history there between Poland and Russia, obviously, the former Soviet Union and all that. Is that a piece of this story? Are people familiar with it, even though the politics of the moment, like the refugee crisis and the threat of Putin's aggression, How much does the history play into how Poland has become such a stark ally? And frankly, Poland's really been carrying the ball for most of the EU. They're out on point on most of this. How much does the history play into that? Because that is about a generation away now since the fall of the Iron Curtain. Is it a present thing that folks are thinking about or is it just the immediate threat or is there a combination of both those things that have made them such a staunch ally to the Ukrainian people?
2: I would say that there are several factors to that, so first of all, of course uh, people and population have historical memory and if you walk across Warsaw you can see the monuments uh, uh, that remind us about communist times, right? But at the same time, I think that it is also determined by the geopolitical situation because uh, Poland is basically neighboring to Belarus and uh, they're afraid that in case if uh, Ukraine loses this war, war can knock their own doors. So definitely there is no interest to the country to be directly involved into war. And uh, as a country, they have their own programs to solve, economical, social and etc. But at the same time, it also uh, becomes a contributing factor where they support Ukraine and uh, help both with humanitarian aid, with military aid, and, of course, with praising and accepting refugees.
1: Yeah, Tanya Rock joining us. What's the other side of that? The Ukrainian people, I'm sure, are keeping track of who their friends are here. Like they, They've learned pretty quickly and, and in a very real way who their friends are here. Poland, obviously the United States, the UK, these other countries, from the Ukrainian point of view, how is it keeping track of and marking, okay, these are our real allies, they've really been here for us when they needed to be?
2: I think that it generally depends on the bubble as well, because, of course, there are countries who are more anti-Ukrainian, and that is visible. But at the same time, we can also talk about a certain individual level, and we can also talk about private donors and private help, which is quite often more efficient than government uh, aid too. Uh, But at the same time, I think that uh, people who get to countries uh, that are Ukrainian allies, they feel the help, they feel the support from. Civilians, and of course, they feel it in terms of how they are placed, how they are treated, and the social narratives that are used in those particular countries. I can speak about Poland, and I know that lots uh, of people moved here, particularly in Warsaw. You can uh, quite often, often, you can hear Ukrainian speech uh, on the streets, and that just shows that uh, the amount of people is higher than uh, expected. And I think that. Uh, It also shifts the cultural narrative, the social agenda in Poland, and we can also uh, just wait of what happened long term in that and how the narrative would would be shifted.
1: Yeah, Tanya Rock joining us. Let's talk about another country though, that hasn't been quite as staunch as Poland. A lot of talk about Germany kind of back and forth. Again, complicated history with Russia, very complicated history with Poland. A uh, new chancellor and Olaf Scholz kind of been halfway in, halfway out. Besides just the politics of it, when you see the war in Ukraine being used as part of the larger geopolitical uh, situation, obviously that's going to be frustrating to see it. But how does it play? Just seeing that, hey, you know, you have your country being invaded but it's kind of politics as usual for a lot of folks, even folks that are supposedly allies. That's got to be tough to watch just on a personal level. And then the politics get really complicated on it.
2: Uh, It is complicated. And uh, of course there is this recent issue and a certain scandal uh, with leopard tanks, because uh, of course, in the beginning, they promised to, uh, supply Ukraine with 88 tanks, but at the same time there is uh, a difficulty with uh, giving them as a military aid due to uh, the need to repair them. But then also it is prolonged uh, since you need to get the weapon for those tanks and the details that are used for those tanks they are no longer produced. Of course we can see that from economical, geopolitical, uh, aspect uh, germany is also trying not to be very rough in their conclusions and uh, i hope that that does not sound rough but to sit on both chairs without polling uh, the diplomatic relations with both countries uh, but it is what it is
1: yeah tanya rock joining us let's talk about this this way though Two, three years ago, you weren't planning on sitting here talking to an American media audience about the war in your own country. That wasn't part of your life plan, right? You were, you know, working in tech stuff. You were doing these things. You have an entire generation of folks like you from Ukraine now. This will be probably the defining moment in their life in a lot of ways. For somebody that hasn't been through that, how has that changed your life? It's not just career and, you know, going to university and career and what am I going to do with my life? It's, How do we survive? Am I going to have a country? How do we do these things? Try to explain that to somebody, because we just see the headlines. There's millions of folks just like you. Your whole life has been upended by this conflict. How does that affect you? How does that change your view on things? Just try to explain that to those of us that just see this on TV.
2: So I think that war changes your mind once and forever. First of all, you become more radical in your thoughts. You see world more black and white, without grey shadows and of course once you experience war, you, as trivial as it may sound, you understand how precious life can be and that it can end up quite soon and quite easy. That's why you start to appreciate each moment. When it comes uh, to the position uh, of you or um, when it, when it comes to a personal position as a citizen, It just determines uh, that you cannot be apolitical as some of people used to be. Uh, And right now when I hear that people are saying something like that, I don't trust them because they're still in the context. They just don't realize it. And all the political agenda, all the things that are going on on the global arena, they still impact them. It's just that they're not completely aware about them. It also changed my perspective on the things that i find valuable and the things that i work on right now i would like to dedicate my life to more social projects and to civil activities that that matter, that bring difference, that are also connected with my country, with supporting it, rebuilding it. it does not matter whether I continue working with Ukrainian uh, projects, crimes, businesses, and I help uh, them to grow and to survive during these four times. Or it's uh, more about non-profit sector, where I also work with organizations that uh, are providing help to my country or directly with people who would like to provide help to my country or to a certain level to help people who got into difficult situations because of war. Because war is not something you choose, but war is also not about the death. It's a certain way of life and you have to adjust to it and to make your living despite all those uh, obstacles and circumstances.
1: joining us. One of those ways it's overcome, that's become very apparent. And you know, you were kind of in this field already, but like you said, it probably focused you the technology aspect of this conflict and the war and the invasion and what the Ukrainian people have been through. This has really been so important because the Ukrainian people have really been able to almost voice themselves in a way they've been able to present their side. They've been able to be active participants in the propaganda war, Through the technology, how important has things, you mentioned Telegram before, social media, Western allies that um, promote and send out stuff once it gets out. How important has the technology been for the Ukrainian people in winning the propaganda war and keeping their allies informed and getting their own voice out there to the wider world?
2: I think that uh, it's a great contribution to leading the information war because the world is not the world is uh, developing digitally and thus, for example, recently uh, there was a project that was data-based and data-oriented and uh, uh, with the help of the artificial intelligence it allows to get the main narratives uh, that are placed in Russian media to determine them and to uh, combat fake information. Then also it is about working with Russian audience online and to explain them how things are. Of course, it can be babbled as in each authoritarian state and sometimes it is really difficult to understand what civilians think and what's in their mind and how to find out the truth. But it does not mean that you don't have uh, to dodge on this audience. You have to explain, and when you explain, you can achieve certain results. Other than that, of course, there are re- data-driven-oriented solutions that allow to spread the messages that are crucial, that uh, are efficient in uh, communicating our Western allies, and etc. cetera. And uh, a small note on that, too. Recently, there was a digital campaign uh, that was called leopards. And it was quite um, simple, but it was efficient. There was a social media campaign where people had to take a picture uh, in clothes uh, or uh, accessories with prints with a hashtag, give us leopards. It got quite viral and uh, it, it hit uh, top news in Western media too, which is also a small but a contributing factor.
1: Tanya Rack, It's got to be hard, but it's something, you know, I've tried to do, whether it's Russia or China or any of these really brutal dictatorships. It's different because, you know, your country was invaded. How do you separate the Russian people and Putin and the folks that run the country? Obviously, there's overlap. There's Russians that support him. But there are some that probably don't want this, that still want more freedom, that don't want to be involved in this. How do you parse it out as somebody that's directly involved in this?
2: This is a big issue that Ukrainian society uh, is being polarized at. I'm trying to judge people not based on their nationality, but uh, on the principles of individualism. However, I think that there is a huge problem that quite often Russian civilians think that they're political and that of course we we didn't start this war, we didn't choose that war, but it does not look like they're doing something to stop or oppose that. Again, I cannot uh, tell you clearly how the situation for them is right now because Russia is low key isolated now and it's hard to understand what's going on in the society without get, getting a particular data-driven report. But um, I'm also trying to judge people by their actions. And so far in my bubble, there are people of Russian origin, Russian citizens who uh, are clear on their positions and who do bold actions uh, in supporting Ukraine. When we speak about people who flee from war, it is also quite debatable because from one hand, those people might be... um, might might oppose but silently war but from the other hand there can be just those people who would like to avoid the conscription and thus they flee so we cannot define who really stands what for and this is one of the big problems when communicating things to russian society too
1: yeah tanya rack joining us for an outside observer like me it's easy to say these things but you know, this is a clear-cut war of aggression. It's an illegal war. It's a brutal war. It's a war against a specific people group, Ukraine, in this case. To me, this this very much cuts to the basics of big words we use, like freedom. How do you apply it, though? Because you know, you were already talking about things like freedom in your own work, and you used it in other things. To go back to where we started, war focuses things. War changes things. I have to think that applying things like freedom now like freedom to write, freedom of speech, freedom of press. You just mentioned it the situation in Russia. We talk about a war of aggression. This really is the core of freedom. Like, do these people have a right to exist or not? And that's the core of this. How do you get that message out to folks who just see it as, oh, it's another war of people somewhere else that I don't understand our language and I don't understand these places on their map? Is it personalizing it? Is it telling the stories of the Ukraine people? Is it telling about the brutality? How do we tell this story better that, no, this stuff really matters in a big picture way if you care about freedom?
2: I think that all stories um, become more personalized these days because from the Western perspective, if you are sitting somewhere in the office on the opposite part of the world, of course, you can care on a certain level because If you are not sociopathic, you wouldn't like people to die. You wouldn't like war to break out in any part of the world. But do you really care? No, because it does not impact your life directly. But if we want to communicate efficiently, we should not speak only with numbers because, you know, a death of a particular person is a tragedy and deaths of many people is just statistics. So, in my mind, we need to personalize these stories. So, to tell people what happened to this woman in Irpen or to that man in Bucha, because that's how people sympathize with those stories. When we talk about freedom, we need to understand that this is without using big words, the the fight for freedom, the right of Ukraine to exist as an independent state and uh, also without using big words again, this is also um, being a shield to other countries, to neighboring countries. And that's why it is necessary to speak it out loud and to emphasize that Ukraine needs world support these days, too.
1: Yeah, Tanya Rack, tell folks where they can follow you and keep up with you. I really appreciate your time on Hertel. We're going to have you back hopefully soon. We're glad uh, you and your family are safe for now, but obviously you have lots of family and friends that are still there. How can people follow you, keep up with you and tell folks what you have going on until we get you back on the program again?
2: The best way to contact me is to follow me on Twitter. My handle is uh, Tanya Arak, the same as my name. And I would be glad to stay in touch and to discuss things in person, privately, and always open to the discussion. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It was a pleasure to talking to you.
1: Thank you so much. Uh obviously thank you for the time. No, it's not the easiest topic to talk about, but it's important and we appreciate you greatly and look forward to having you back soon. Tanya Rack, thank you so much, ma'am.
2: Thank you.
1: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla, to the ADHD, to the international accountability, to orangutan. Yes, I know, that's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.